Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. That was, uh, I think, the longest seven minutes that I've ever witnessed in my life. (laughs) Um, So this morning, Michael texted me and he said, hey, just so you know, the East or the Sunday after Easter is the like record lowest attendance of all year. So uh, he said, if nobody shows up, it's not because you're preaching. So that made me feel a little bit better. But uh, we had a pretty good turnout. So pat yourselves on the back because you guys were the the, the good ones. <laughs> anyway, um, so before I get started, I want to be completely transparent. And up front, this is my first sermon that I've ever prepared for, first sermon that I've ever preached. And so we've got some rules, okay? The first rule is that Michael has a lot more experience than I do, so cut me some slack. The second rule is that, see, I've never taken a public speaking course uh, in college. I know a lot of people have. So what I did is I YouTubed it, because that's the new university. And, uh, and I got some ideas on how to preach and how to talk to people and, um, and, and speak in public. And one of the things that they said is to move around a little bit, try to be a little bit more animated. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And they also said try to look at people in the, in the eye. So if, if I make eye contact with you, it might be weird, but it's nothing personal. Um, unless you're falling asleep, then it's probably personal. Um, that's one thing. Last time I got up and spoke, uh, I, I said, I called Michael. I said, yeah, uh, I, I didn't realize that people actually do fall asleep while you're talking. And so he's like, oh, yeah, there's always at least one. <laughs> so I've got my eye out on you. Um, now, uh, one of these things that these, these, uh, I found on YouTube um, was that, you know, moving around and being... Uh, not static certainly helps. And some of the other pointers, you know, it has nothing to do with seeing the audience in their underwear, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, And I did learn that, uh, uh, well, let me, I already already said that. (laughs) Um, So this may come as a surprise to some of you, but back whenever I was in high school, believe it or not, I was a cheerleader. And, uh, and in all humbleness, I was actually a pretty good one. Um, but there was, <laughs> uh, I wasn't the best. There was always this other guy who could out-tumble me, uh, no matter where I was. And um, tumbling for all you non-cheerleader, non-gymnast types, that's where you take off doing flips. You could do one flip, or you could do multiple flips. And, uh, and this other guy would take off all the way down the football field or the basketball court. And I'm talking about a, a completely packed stadium. And the crowd would just go crazy. And, you know, he would finish. And then he would look up and everybody's applauding and, and going crazy. And then the whole crowd would turn and look at me. And it was like, I, I knew what that meant. I, it was my turn to go. And, um, and so... I would take off going and doing just about everything I could possibly do before I broke something or passed out, um, only to finish and land and look up and realize that I'm not even past the 50-yard line. And, of course, I I remember hearing my mom uh, screaming at the top of her lungs in excitement, but um, the, the crowd wasn't nearly as excited as they were about 30 seconds before. So why could I possibly be telling you this story? Well, that would probably be the feeling that you would get if your pastor asked you to preach the week after Easter. Uh, Because you can't really one-up Jesus. You just can't beat the resurrection, the burial of Jesus Christ, the gospel as we know it. And so um, I would like to teach a lesson, though, that was taught to me about a week ago. Once I was preparing for the sermon and I was really digging deep, um, God taught me something that was very interesting. I was going to actually stand up here and preach a completely different, different sermon this morning. Uh, and it was almost going to be opposite of what I'm about to preach right now. And so when Michael asked me to preach, I didn't spend a whole lot of time or prayer 
thinking about what I was going to preach about because I already kind of knew what my first sermon would eventually be like. And it covers a couple verses that always have stood out to me. Verses that are actually Jesus' parables that kind of made me feel guilty for not doing enough, especially considering everything that he's done for me and you and everything that we learned about last week on Resurrection Sunday. I was going to stand up here and I was going to tell you what I thought you should know and what I thought was a good lesson that I had learned before. And it actually turned out to be a lesson in the making. And if you guys know what I'm talking about, um, if you seek God, if you look into his word and you spend a good amount of time, you'll find that some of our misconceptions or the things that the world has taught us is simply that. It's just a misconception. And, and he can show us the truth. And so this is why Michael encourages us to seek the Lord on our own, on our own not to take his word for it or to take my word for it, but to actually truly seek him, um, leaving all expectations and those worldly views out of it. Push them to the side. I learned that if you seek him, he'll often give you an answer that you weren't even looking for in the first place. You didn't even know to ask. And he'll reveal sometimes things that are hidden to others, quite possibly. So I, as I studied these parables, God began to reveal the truth of what they actually meant because I was looking at it at face value. I was looking at it all wrong. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I heard the audible voice of God and um, he revealed things to me that have never been revealed to anybody else because that would be a cult. And uh, in, in fact, some of you guys probably know the true meaning of these parables anyway. So uh, you may have been taught it properly. It may have been taught to you properly. Um, while others may be hearing it this way for the first time, just like I was a week ago. So even if every single one of you do know the proper meaning for this parable, I still or two parables actually, um, I still think that this sermon holds value because it does teach an important lesson that God will reveal himself to you if you just seek him. See, time and time again in Scripture, we, we hear God or see God telling his people, seek me, just seek me, and I will reveal it to you. Just seek me. And these parables that we're going to be going over are uh, just two of many that Jesus had taught. He actually taught 50, to be exact. And I actually uh, talked to Michael this morning. He said, hey, what your, what's your next one going to be about? And I said, do you think it would be shallow to go over uh, another parable? And he was like, absolutely not. Jesus said this for a reason. And we're going to get into that, why he said these things um, throughout his ministry and spoke to people in parables. So I'm sure we all know what a parable is. So for the sake of time, I'm going to give you the definition anyway. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary defines a parable as a simple story or a moral lesson as told by Jesus in the Gospels. Now, when we hear the Oxford Dictionary, you really wouldn't think of the Oxford types to even bring up Jesus' names. So I'm glad that they did in this case, um, because it seems like that would be, that would be pretty rare. Uh, so basically, they're short stories or analogies that are fiction, but they're rooted in truth. You could even call them riddles, because they're not laid out to tell you exactly how it is, or tell you exactly how it should be. It's something hidden to others. Now, why is this important to us? Why does it matter that Jesus spoke in parables? Not only do parables hold truth, but they also fulfilled prophecy of the coming Messiah. So if you have your Bibles, um, I know Michael normally puts it up on the screen here. Uh, we weren't able to do that this week. Uh, I guess we hit just about everything except for the screen, uh, which is okay. That's part of this church. If you're first time here, you'll know that we do things a little different. And if mistakes are made, we just roll with it because God doesn't expect us to be perfect and we don't expect uh, anybody else to be perfect. So Psalm 78, verse 1 and 2. 
If you guys don't have a Bible app, you can go to biblehub.com. It's a great source where you can just type in the, the scripture that I'm telling you, and it'll pull it up immediately. So Psalm 78, verse 1 and 2, Listen, my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will tell riddles of old. Now, this is the New American Standard version that I'm reading about, um, or reading from. But a thousand years before Christ came, it was predicted uh, that he, meaning the Messiah, would preach in parables. Let's look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. This is verse 1. This is uh, Isaiah's vision that he's having, and he finds himself in the presence of the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. If you guys remember some of the worship that we sing, uh, there's, there's one song, high and lifted up. That's another, another translation of this verse. It doesn't sound as cool when you say, lofty and exalted. So we, we just say high and lift it up. Uh, with his train of robes filling the temple. Filling. I did it again, see? <laughs> filling the temple. That's my Oklahoma accent coming out. Um, so if you imagine, you know, like a, like a bride as she's walking down the aisle, she's got the train. This is the Lord's train of his robe filling the entire temple. Now this is verse 2. Seraphim, which is quite an odd looking angelic figure, stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, because even angels would cover their face in the presence of the Lord. Two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Verse 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So, Again, we see another even worship song, holy, holy, holy. So we're, we're seeing that in these actual scriptures. That's where we get most of our worship. We don't want to just make up words and make things up. We want them to be scriptural. scriptural. So you see that in so many worship songs today. Uh, so uh, verse 4, And the foundations of the, of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my lip with it, or my mouth with it, and said, behold... This has touched your lips, and your inequity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Then he said, Go and tell this people. This is the, this is the whole point in this entire chapter. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So what could the Lord possibly be saying here? He's saying that I've preached to these people. Now he's talking about Israel. I preached to these people. I've sent them prophets. I've cried out to them. I've shown them miracles. I know who they are, and they know who I am. And they still don't obey me. And then God says, basically, that's it. That's it. He purpose, purposely hardened their hearts. And God continues later in the book of Isaiah proclaiming that he will speak to them in parables. That the truth will land right alongside of their ear. And they will not hear because they have not obeyed. And because their hearts are hardened, they will not receive the knowledge which is a blessing to those hearing it. Rather, they would be cursed 
from missing it all along. Now, let's take a look at Matthew 13, verse 10. Here we see Isaiah's vision referenced by Jesus himself. So in Matthew 13, 10 through 16, Then the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them... The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For the people's heart has grown callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They hardly, or they close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. So listen to the weight that Jesus puts on parables. They are they're some serious business because it either blesses you or it curses you. A parable almost acts like a judge to see what your thought process is. Are you going to see the face value of it or are you going to understand or at least open your ears so that you can hear to learn the true meaning of these parables? Will you be like Isaiah who proclaims, woe is me for I am ruined so that the seraphim may cleanse your lips and declare your inequities gone? See, God sees those who do. God sees those people And he wants to pour even more light into you. He wants to bless you with the true meaning of these parables. He is telling you, seek me. Seek me, hear me, and see me, and I will give you the truth. Later in Matthew, Jesus explains exactly what each of these parables mean, but only to his disciples. They were seeking the truth. They were seeking his knowledge. So these riddles have a hidden truth or knowledge only meant to be unveiled or understood by those with eyes that see and ears that hear. Notice that Jesus has to explain these things to his disciples. They didn't just hear them and instantly receive the message and receive the truth. They were probably just as confused as the crowds of people were until Jesus unveiled or revealed the truth to them that they understood. And it's no different today. You can take scripture at face value, like I said, or you can seek him, open your eyes, open your ears, and only then will God reveal his truth. Now, it is insanely important that we know that God, all the prophecies that God or uh, the, the prophets revealed about the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. About his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And a few weeks ago, Michael preached on apologetics, or he mentioned it a little bit in, in some of his other, other sermons, which if you remember, apologetics is the study or the defense of what it is you believe Uh, You could even call it your defense against the dark arts. When people come to question you and your faith and your belief, you have to know how to respond to those things. And knowing that Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies and this prophetic scripture is the very foundation of your, uh, your apologetics to know he is exactly who he said he is. This is your defense against the dark arts. Now, the parables that I'm going to be referencing today is in Matthew 13, and there's some really beautiful imagery here. Uh, This is verse 1, Matthew 13. On that day, Jesus had gone out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. 
he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. Now, that's something that's interesting too, is that whenever Jesus spoke, he only spoke to them in parables, other than his disciples and his followers. We know this because it is constantly reminded uh, over and over again throughout the New Testament. Matthew 13, 34 tells us all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. He did not speak to them anything, he did not speak anything to them without a parable. And then there's verse 35 says, This is so that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables, I will proclaim things hidden since the foundation of the world. Other, uh, other versions of Scripture says riddles of old, like I said earlier. So we're going to be getting in these two parables this morning. And both of these parables reference the kingdom of heaven. So it's, in very, it's very important for us to know what the kingdom of heaven is. And this is where we kind of get into the, uh, the, the, the proper separation of Scripture. Who's, who is it to and who is it for? So rightly dividing Scripture, we know that the kingdom of heaven to us, we're the Gentiles, that the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of Christ in us, in our lives. It's a personal, spiritual relationship with Christ. To Israel, it's two things. It is a the, the rule and reign of Christ in their own personal lives, spiritually. And, and then it's also the national rule and reign of Christ in the, in the physical realm uh, for a thousand years. And the amazing thing is that Jesus was there. He, it was coming. It was coming just as he said it was. But as we know, Israel rejected him. And whenever that happened, it postponed that kingdom of heaven until Jesus returns and the rapture happens and then he will reign on earth for a thousand years. So that's coming. Don't think that it's not. It's absolutely coming. Now let's get into these parables. The first one is about a treasure hidden in a field. So this is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. So let's talk about face value. Face value, it's pretty clear what this parable is teaching. The importance of or the esteem in which we should hold the kingdom of heaven, or in our case, the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in Matthew, a little bit earlier, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, states, this is Jesus, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroys, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and then later he goes on to say no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve God and wealth this same exact scripture is referenced again in Luke chapter 12. Um, but in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus was about to set off on a journey and then a young rich ruler ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? So let's completely avoid that man's question and, and respond with a question. If Jesus does that, we should definitely pay attention. So basically, our perception of what good is, and this is something, rule of thumb to always remember, our perception of good and God's perception of what good is, is completely different. 
We could never be the good that God says is good. So going on, I digress. Um, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father, father and mother. And then the man almost cuts him off and interrupts him and says, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And if it were me, I'd be rolling my eyes so hard. Um, but Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus, it says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and went away grieving for he was a, one who owned much property. And then later in that, in that chapter, Jesus says, oh, how difficult it would be for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He's not saying that being rich is a sin, but how hard it is to put your value in him and not all of the things that you own. <clears throat> There's... There's something interesting about this idea that someone who has a lot of things, a lot of wealth, and they give away half, if not more. Not saying that you have to do that. That would be legalism. So we stay away from that here at our church. But just that esteem in which we should hold all the things up in heaven, all that God has given us, and where our value should be of the things on earth. So at face value, again, this seems pretty clear. Earlier, whenever I was saying that I felt an immense amount of, of guilt because I wasn't doing enough for the kingdom of heaven, I can imagine that after hearing these scriptures that some of you might be feeling the same way. And I assure you that that's not the purpose of this sermon. In fact, just wait till the end because it's, gonna, it's, it's going to flip. Uh, but Jesus was not wrong. Even if there is a twist at the end of the sermon, Jesus obviously could not be wrong. We should never elevate our wealth and our success or the things that we hold valuable here on earth and create false idols. We see those, that happening in our culture all the time. That's probably, there's probably no more difficult time to be dealing with this than this, this culture that we're in right now. So whenever the man found the treasure... Everything else in his life became meaningless compared to the value of the treasure in the field. Everything you find valuable in this world is finite and empty. It can be lost in an instant. It can be stolen. It can be destroyed. It can be burnt down. If you're young and strong and beautiful, one day that youth, strength, and beauty will be gone. And from the day we are born, we are destined to eventually be old and broken. And it doesn't matter how rich you are, you're going to die. It doesn't matter how strong you are, you will be weak. And we've all witnessed this in our own lives at some point or another, whether it was someone that we love or, some, or it's happening to us already. Because um, this is not our home. We, we have to remember that even if it's taking these at face value, this is not our home. The things of this world are simply not treasures. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to it as dung. But could there be more to this parable than meets the eye? That's the whole purpose for this sermon. The next parable comes directly after the first, and Jesus continues. This is Matthew 13. 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is much like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and bought it. So here's another parable clearly teaching us the esteem in which we should hold the kingdom of heaven. It says it itself. You know, um, one thing that I absolutely love here on earth is vacations. And if you thought I was going to say food, shame on you. Um, but vacations, right? We, we know the feeling. 
your boss approved your vacation time, and you've bought your plane tickets, and you booked your hotel room, and you planned out every single minute of the trip. You might even have an itinerary. You know exactly what you're going to be doing. You've started working on your beach bod, and you bought some new vacation clothes. You are absolutely ready for this trip, and it's all you can possibly think about. The anticipation is driving you insane. And the year that you've been planning your vacation, uh, today is finally the day that you get to go. Your bags are packed, and they're in the car. You're about to get in the car and head to the, to the, uh, to the airport, and suddenly your youngest child collapses, not breathing. What happens? The year of planning and preparation, the three months of salary you spent on the amusement park, the plane tickets, the hotel rooms, none of that matters. It all goes out the window. Why? Because everything you held valuable became meaningless in an instant. As Paul called it, dung, in comparison of what you truly find valuable, your treasure. And that's exactly how these two men in the parables felt. One of them even hid the treasure again in fear of losing it. So the other day I was talking to a friend and he was telling me about his mentor. And the first question that his mentor asked him, first question, how is your relationship with God? And my buddy says, man, it's, it's great. I've got it on my calendar to spend 15 minutes in quiet time. We go to church regularly. We do, uh, we do you know, prayer meetings and things like that. It's, it's great. The mentor replies, okay, now I want you to tell me what your relationship is like with your wife. How, do, how is that going? He said, it's good. We, uh, we go on dates and um, we have good communication and things are, things are fantastic. Then the mentor says, okay, that's great. Now I want you to call your wife and tell her that you're only going to put her on the calendar for 15 minutes each day. No calls during the day, nothing outside that 15 minutes. What do you think she'd say? And you know exactly where I'm going with this. That's exactly how God feels whenever we put him on the back burner. When all he's saying, seek me, seek me. Reach out, look, open your eyes, open your ears, hear my words. The Lord is our treasure, our great pearl of value. But again, I ask you, could, this be, could there be more than meets the eye with this parable? So I'm in real estate, and I've got two other guys in real estate here who work with me, and so they, they will understand this. In real estate, you learn the importance of location, location, location. And in the interpretation of Scripture, we have to know the importance of context, context, context. Remember, we're, we're looking at face value versus the hidden truth that lies beneath. That, you know, the, the modern, the, the regular person wasn't meant for this hidden truth. That's going to be revealed if you know the context. So Jesus did not offer an explanation for these two parables to his disciples. So let's look at some of the other parables that he did explain in order to understand the context of these two parables. So in each parable, 50, most of the time you'll find a main character that's usually in the form of a person. And that main character always has some sort of task or action that they're doing. For instance, in Matthew 13, the first parable that he talks about while he's in the boat is the man who sowed seeds on different kinds of soil. So you've got the man who's the subject. He's the, the character, main character. And his action was to sow seeds on different kinds of soil. The next one was a man who sows good seeds... Yet the enemy comes while he is asleep and sows, sows tares or weeds among the good seeds. Again, in the third parable, we see another man. This time he sowed a mustard seed. That's a pretty popular one. We've probably all heard of that one. 
Next, we see a woman who made leavened bread. And then we even see fishermen who are casting out a dragnet to catch as much fish as they can. So what's interesting about these parables is that this person always is represented by God. So, or it represents God. The action represents God's justice, his mercy, his grace, his love, and so on. In this context, it would only seem fitting to apply the same rules to these parables that he was talking about at the same time, about the hidden treasure and the fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again. Joy... And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. So in this case, could the man represent God? If so, what what is the treasure? Now let's take a look at the Old Testament. Maybe we can find the answer. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. In this, uh, in this portion, he's talking about Israel. And verse 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. Now, in the original Hebrew text, the word for treasured possession is segula. Again, in Exodus, this is Exodus 19.5, 19 verse 5, we see Israel referred to as God's segula. And he says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, co- my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, or segula, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So the parable um, God purchases, purchases the entire field, but the treasure is his segula, his treasured possession. So all of the earth is mine. Think of the earth as being the field. And within the field, there is a treasured possession. Segula is also used in Old Testament context as well, but it's in a more non-religious aspect. Solomon referred to his vast wealth of gold and silver as his segula. It was his valuable personal possession. Then David, when talking about his wealth that he donated for the construction of the temple, he calls that wealth his segula. So as these kings had their wealth, their segula, if you will, God has his treasured possession, Israel, which is his segula. And then this one is a little bit more interesting. It's in Ezekiel 16, but it still drives home this point. God is speaking directly to Jerusalem, and which is the crown jewel of Israel, keep in mind. And in this analogy, we see a lot of the same words and same imagery that we're seeing in the parable. So this gets slightly graphic, so bear with me. Verse 4. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. Remember, this is an analogy. Nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things. You have, or or to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into a field. For you were abhorred on the day that you were born. When I passed by you, I saw you squirming in your blood. And I said, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, he even says it again. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. So we're seeing maturity in the nation of Israel. Then I passed by you and saw you and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. 
I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. They became God's segula. So look at this imagery. You're seeing a, an infant that was not cared by or for, cared for by anyone. No one else saw value there. But watch what God does. I bathed you in water, washed off your blood, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and necklace, a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So in this Scripture, we get just a glimpse of God's love for Israel, which is God's segula again. So I ask, could this parable be referring to God who came across his treasured possession in a field and out of his joy gave everything, even his son, to purchase it? I believe it's both. However, keep in mind, there's nothing that we own or that we could do that could ever meet a fraction of value of the kingdom of heaven or that treasure in the field. There's nothing we could do to buy that. Let's look at the next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Matthew 13. Um, And and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and bought it. Now, this one has a very interesting spin. And you may expect me to give you some some of the same verses about segula and treasured possessions. And I suppose I certainly could do that. But instead, I'm going to tell you about oysters. While studying this sermon, I learned a lot about oysters. Oysters. And did you know that oysters are not kosher? Which means that they are unclean for anyone of the Jewish faith. Not just to eat, but even to touch. So, but keep in mind, the people who he was telling these parables to were Jewish. Let's look at Leviticus 11, verses 19 through, or 9 through 12. Sorry, 9 through 12. It says, these you may eat of whatever is in the water, everything that has fins and scales in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever in the seas and in the river that does not have fins and and scales, among the teeming life of the water and among the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things. But God doesn't stop there. He seriously wants to bring this home and make a point. They shall be detestable to you. You will not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales, it is detestable to you. So not only can they not eat the oysters, but anything coming from an oyster is detestable to them. In other words, pearls have absolutely no value to Jews at all. Now that's interesting because like I said, Jesus was talking to Jews. He was in fact a Jew himself, so he obviously knew this. Why would he use this parable that the people listening couldn't even relate with in any way? To them, the kingdom of heaven could not be like a pearl of any value, because they are detestable to them. God said it himself. And 
in the other context, how could a Jew understand that to God, they were a priceless pearl because pearls have no value to them. They're a Gentile thing. Even back in Jesus' day and today, they are still a Gentile thing. So knowing this, let's look at what exactly a pearl is. Now this is a little bit more of my thoughts and my ideas and my study into this, um, but I do, hold, I do feel like it holds value. Uh, if you've ever seen an oyster, I would claim that they are absolutely detestable. They're pretty gross. They're covered in a hard shell, and on the inside there's a soft body that kind of looks like a tongue, but it's actually its foot, which makes it worse somehow. And uh, the pearl is the only precious stone that comes out of a living organism. So it is considered, like diamonds and rubies, it is considered a precious stone. But how a pearl is formed is quite impressive. You see, a pearl starts as a grain of sand or an irritant or even an intruder inside the oyster, which causes an irritation. And that irritation starts to form sores within that soft body of the clam or oyster. So what does it do? It begins to attack that intruder, coating it over and over and over again. The grain of sand disappears and becomes soft and round, and it is coated with this beautiful coating that is called the mother of pearl. The irritation is gone. And I think this is a an amazing analogy of sin. It gets stuck in our lives and there's only one way that we can soften it and that is to cover it with something beautiful and make it disappear. And that's exactly what the, the, the gospel does for us. So that irritation is gone and I, I can imagine you guys wouldn't think you'd be getting a marine biology lesson today but I, just, I think that's so incredible. I think that uh, it's a, it's, it flows well with this because there's a treasure hit, hidden inside and by looking at the outside, you would never know it. You would never know that there is some... If you didn't know what a clam or a, or a oyster was and that they had pearls inside, you would never think to open that thing up to find something so valuable. You'd walk right past it. And people walk right past us all the time. You see where I'm going with this? The Holy Spirit is within us, and the, the Bible teaches that the outside is old, and, it, and it's decaying, but the inside is being made new. So with the Holy Spirit being inside of you, could it be that we, the Gentiles, are the priceless pearl, uh, the pearl of great value? And all throughout Scripture, you can find these little incredible hints about the Gentiles being included in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that's inside of us. Um, and, and, and this is one of those, I believe, that whenever they're talking about the pearl, it could only mean the Gentiles because it, was, it had no value to the Jews. There's another example of what I'm saying, and this one uh, gives me chills and 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 makes me tear up almost every time I hear it. This is in John chapter 10. Turn to that one and, and uh, let's read this one um, because it's pretty incredible. Chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is, this is the one. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, and you will become one flock with one shepherd. You guys hear that? that he's talking about us, and that's what's incredible. Because time and time again, you think that it's, he's, he's, it's, it's only the kingdom of heaven is only for Israel. But this is very clear. The kingdom of heaven is like God 
seeking you. And upon finding you, he went and sold everything that he had. He gave his son's life and bought you. That is the kingdom of heaven. And we should give all that we have to Christ. And we should sell ourselves every day and sacrifice uh, for that sacrifice that Jesus made for us on that cross. But don't get it twisted. There's nothing that we own of value here on earth that we could sell, nothing that we could do, that we could purchase that treasure in that field or that priceless pearl. Only by the grace of God and his love for you because you were purchased at a price. And that is the deeper meaning of that parable. You are his segula. In my study for this sermon, I heard a story from another pastor preaching on a similar topic that really resonated with me. He said, one day, back when he was young, he got a phone call from his mother that his father was on his deathbed. He immediately left his home to meet his brothers and his sisters at his parents' home. When he arrived... After a long and tearful car ride, he saw his father in his usual spot, the recliner in the living room, and his eyes were closed and sweat was pouring down his face. He said it was very clear that he was in a lot of pain. And his mother sat there wiping sweat from her husband's brow. And when her, her son walks in, she looked up and smiled at him and he was quite taken back. And angry, given that he was so distraught, what could she possibly have to smile about, he thought. And he even said, how could you possibly be smiling at a time like this while dad is suffering in pain, waiting to die? And she looked up at him, still smiling, and said, your, do- your, your father deserves nothing but to spend eternity in hell. But because of Jesus, very soon he will be spending eternity in the presence of the Lord. And she didn't know this, but about 30 minutes later, her husband passed away. Now, given that the preacher who was the son in this story, his mother's words must have truly resonated with him as well. He was pouring down, crying, talking about this. His whole outlook had changed. You see, this gospel is this good news. We could never have done anything to earn it. We don't deserve it, but that's exactly why Jesus died on the cross because he could do the very thing that we could not. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you.